Who could carry that kind of weight? It was my tomb till I met you. I was breathing, but not alive. All my failures I tried to hide. It was my tomb till I
We're going to sing a new song now this morning that tells us that it's only, only God's son's blood that saved us from that sin. Let's sing it together as you learn it. What can wash away the guilty stain after all the
let's sing this out. Walking around these walls I thought by now they'd fall But you have never failed me change to come knowing the battles won for you have never failed me yet come on our confidence is in this your promise still stands great is your faithfulness your faithfulness
promise still stands. Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. Your faithfulness. I'm still in Gracious God, you have not failed us. God, you have moved mountains in our life, in our church community, in our neighborhoods, in our schools. God, you have moved mountains called shame. God, you have moved mountains called guilt. God, you have moved mountains called our fear. And God, you are going to do it again. God, I pray for the mountain right now of somebody who's in the room worshiping with us who's looking up at a week ahead or a year ahead of 2019 and God needing to see you move. God, speak to that person right now and to remind them as you remind all of us that you have moved the mountain called death to life again and you'll do it again. God, we pray all of this in the name of your risen son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Church, you can have a seat. Welcome, everybody. My name is Dirk, preaching pastor here at Encounter Church. And today we have the opportunity to celebrate a baptism together. Every time we do this, every time we gather around this table, we want to remind ourselves of, of what we're doing and why. When we, ask, uh, when we gather around the table, we ask a couple of questions. The first one that we ask is, when we baptize, why do we baptize with water? And the answer to that is simple. It's just as water washes away dirt from my body, so too does the blood of Christ wash away all of our sins. There's nothing mysterious or magical about the water, but it's what the water points to, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. When we baptize, we ask, why babies? We're going to see that Jackson is going to come up, and he's, and he's so small, and he's so helpless to do anything on his own. And the answer is exactly, because spiritually, that's where we all are standing before the Father having nothing to offer him at all until his word comes in, speaking first into our lives, making our heartbeat come alive in him. And lastly, this act of baptism is an invitation. If you've been baptized, this is an invitation uh, to consider and to remember your own baptism. If you're an adult worshiping with us and you want to explore what this act of baptism could look like for you, we have another baptism weekend coming up at the end of February where we're going to have the tank on stage and we would love to celebrate with you. Start that conversation by filling out the form at encounterchurch.org baptism. At this time, I want to invite Justin and Elise to come on forward. Of course, 
bringing along Jackson as well. Uh, Justin and Elise, uh, as we get together here, uh, you know I've got a, a couple of these questions that I'm going to ask you uh, this morning. Um, the first one is that, do you believe that Jackson uh, is in need of the grace that Jesus has to offer? In other words, is he sinful by nature? Uh, do you believe that Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, conquered our two chief fears, sin and death? Do you believe that the Bible is God's infallible word and plan of salvation? And do you promise as parents to do everything that you can so that Jackson grows up always knowing that he's included in God's loving and gracious family? What's your answer? Awesome. And in church and family and friends, I invite you to respond that same way we do God helping us when I ask all of you, do you promise to do everything that you can so that Jackson grows up always knowing that he's a son of the king and included in God's loving and gracious family church? What's your answer? We do God helping us. Jackson, I invite you forward to be baptized. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you, Jackson. Let's pray together. Gracious God, this is a beautiful and awesome act of you reaching down from heaven and speaking your first word into Jackson's life. Uh, God, may we all see ourselves standing before you as a child, helpless and unable to contribute anything at all to our own salvation until you, Holy Spirit, breathe the first word into our lives. God, I pray for Jackson as he grows up, always knowing that he's a son of your, the, yours, the king, included in his family. In Jesus' name, we pray. And we all said, amen. Let's welcome Jackson to the family of God. Thank you. It's yeah. a tough act to follow. Hey everybody, I just want to give you a couple of, uh, of exciting next steps here at Encounter Church. Uh, in the seat back in front of you, there's a connection card. If you have an update on your life, maybe even an address change, a way that we can pray for you, we would love to do that. Fill that card out and put it in the offering bucket as it makes its way by in just a few minutes. Um, two exciting next steps. The first one is that it's actually church. It is small group Sunday this weekend. We're pretty pumped about that one. You received one of these when you came in today. This is a list of all of the small group opportunities that we've got going on right now. You can see more at encounterchurch.org slash events. If you came here today and you don't have like your church people, or maybe you came here today and you like need some new church people, if you know what I'm saying. Like this is your opportunity to go to EncounterChurch.org slash events, register for one of these groups, especially the group called Seven, because my wife is helping to lead that one and we're kind of competitive around here. So check, but I'm sure the other ones are good too. But check, check out all the offerings because we, we know that you cannot, none of us, we cannot do life alone which is why we do life together. The other way in order to connect into uh, finding your people here at church is by joining a Sunday serving team. Encounterchurch.org slash serve. This is a great opportunity to work shoulder to shoulder, maybe make good on that New Year's uh, resolution that you have to give something back or do something, pay it forward, whatever it might be. Encounterchurch.org slash serving. We see the timestamps of the registration on stuff and we love whenever it comes in and it's like Sunday morning at 10 o'clock or whatever it is. That's awesome. Very encouraging around here. 
All right, find your people. Don't do life alone. We do life together. This time I want to invite the offering takers to come forward as we celebrate this morning's offering. This is not a time to give to encounter, but this is a time to give through the church of Jesus Christ as together we turn our gifts into his changed lives. All right, church, today is part two of our series called Unbreakable. And today we're asking that question, who are you trying to impress? Because I think it's fair to say that we've all done some things, some crazy things, weird things, sometimes extreme things in order to impress somebody. And so we're asking together, who are you trying to impress? Um, there's a, there's a, a trend right now on Facebook where people are posting like their first and last profile pictures over the last, sometimes it's like 10 years to see like how the last 10 years have aged you or like this challenge is going around. I don't have very good Facebook profile pictures, so I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to play that game, but I do have this. This is a picture of 16 year old Dirk and yes, thank you. And the woman that will eventually uh, marry me. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> This is me trying to impress her. And, and the person taking the picture was actually Kristen's dad. So this is me trying to impress my wife and her dad. So he offered, the story behind is to, he offered to drive us to Chicago and like hang out for the day. And so I'm like, I'm going to pull out all of the stops in order to impress my, at the time, girlfriend and her dad. So this is what it means to like 16, 17-year-old Dirk to pull out all the stops. So I got my, my bleached blonde hair. I don't know why. It's like messy. Took me a while to like get it like that that day. And it's, you know, too long. I got my favorite beaded necklace on. And I got my awesome Hawaiian print t-shirt because that's how you impress your girlfriend's dad. <laughs> the, my favorite part about this whole picture is I never noticed it until I dug it up again. Um, but I'm actually wearing a belt that's the exact same color green as my t-shirt because that's how you impress your girlfriend, a matching belt. Uh, that's me. That's me doing what I can to impress uh, my, my then girlfriend and her dad. The question, though, is who are you trying to impress? I heard a story earlier this week about somebody who was like looking back in high school for him, and he said, I had a crazy crush on the girl who sat in front of me in history class. Right, where you know, it's, she would turn around and talk to him, and, and it just made his day. And so one time she turns around and she says, you know, you would look cute with an earring. And so he goes, I knew what I had to do, right? <laughs> that weekend, he goes, gets a ride to the mall, gets his ear pierced, just so that he could show up uh, to school history class on Monday morning, tap her on the shoulder and say, notice anything different about me? Now, get in the mind of a 16-year-old boy. This is like, he's expecting her to just throw herself at him. Like, this is game over. This is everything, right? I mean, married, babies, life ever after. Like, everything is great. She turns around, notice anything different about me? And she goes, oh, cute earring, and turns right back around. <laughs> he goes, I didn't want an earring. I didn't want an earring at all. <laughs> I, it, I, the earring lasted. That was Monday. The earring lasted uh, not even until Friday. 
right? But, but as it healed over, it kind of scarred. And so he goes, now I can touch my ear and I can remember the time that I actually got my ear pierced to impress a girl. Like lesson learned. Who are you trying to impress? Because we do this kind of image monitoring, right? Where, where we want to cast a certain picture of ourselves to the world because we want them in some way, shape, or form to be impressed by us. And, and so we might kind of exaggerate our last tropical vacation because we want to seem a little more adventurous or a little more sophisticated that we are. And we don't want anybody to know that that vacation, that tropical vacation was actually in Columbus. Actually, if, if I was in Ohio, I think I might lie about that too. So. <laughs> Hear about that later. Uh, <laughs> No, no, we, we, we try to impress people all the time, right? We go, to, uh, we go to work. Sometimes I've heard stories about people who have uh, found themselves in careers, in all seriousness, um, simply because mom and dad expected it, uh, simply because peers expected it, simply because this was like the right thing to do. They could, so then they should. And the thing that they're passionate about, the thing that they're longing to do, society says that's not as, as stable or it's not as glamorous, what have you. It's not going to be as impressive as something else. And so we, we live this like passionless, lifeless life for so much because that's what we do to impress people. Who are you trying to impress? The danger of this whole thing, mind you, is what uh, the great philosopher Dave Ramsey said in his, uh, I was expecting an amen, uh, in his book, The Total Money Makeover, he goes, here's what we're doing. We're buying things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like, right? But there's a danger within all of that because when we take, uh, when we take a piece of our heart and we put it out there and it's met with applause and it's met with approval, it makes us feel good. So what do we do? We take a little bit bigger piece of our heart and we put it a little bit more out there. And as long as it's met with applause and as long as it's met with approval, it makes us feel even better until we've got so much of our heart out there. At that time, people are people and they will inevitably let you down and hurt you. And so people will reject it, whatever you're putting out there. They will criticize it and they will judge it. But now you've put so much of your heart out there that they're not rejecting it, criticizing it, or judging it. They're rejecting, criticizing, and judging you. And so you learn the hard way that if you live for their applause, you will die by their criticism. That's a tweetable, so I'm going to say it again. If you live by their applause, you'll die by their criticism. That's what happens. There has to be a different way. There has to be a better way. That's my introduction to Ruth chapter 2. I think Ruth is finding or has found a better way to live. And I think we'd be blessed by it. So we're going to go to Ruth chapter 2. There's Bibles under the chairs in front of you for many of you. There's also the words on the screen behind me. You can follow along on a favorite Bible app or website. While you're finding the site or opening up the, uh, uh, the app, I want to share a little bit in case you're new here. Ruth chapter 1 is a story of Naomi and her husband, uh, Elimelech, who moved away from Israel to Moab. That was an unwise decision. Uh, listen to the message from last week to understand why. They settled down there. Their two sons get married. Ten years later, their sons have died. Her husband, Elimelech, has died. Naomi moves back with one of the daughter-in-laws, Ruth, along with her. Naomi gets back and she's going, don't call me Naomi because that means sweet. Call me Mara because from now on, I am bitter. 
But chapter one ended with like this little hope, right? Like this, the barley harvest was just starting. And that's such a big deal because for a long time, there was a famine and there was no harvesting anything. And so now there's like this glimmer of hope on the horizon. And today in chapter two, we start to crack that one wide open. All right, so Ruth chapter two, it starts off like this. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing, we'll come back to that, from the clan of Elimelech, that's her husband, whose name was Boaz. Boom, boom, boom. And Ruth the Moabite, Ruth is going to be referred to so many times as the Moabite that we're going to start to assume that that's her full name. So her name is like Moabite, comma, Ruth the. Like this is just time after time, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turns out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer, his shift supervisor, of his harvesters, who does that young woman over there belong to? Now, before we like shift the lens, we start talking more about Ruth and hearing Ruth in this story, I want to do a little character study on this guy, Boaz. Uh, names in the book of Ruth mean a lot. Remember, Naomi, sweet, moves away, comes back, empty, right? So she says, don't call me sweet, call me bitter. Elimelech, my God is king. But he wasn't, and that was the irony to it, is that he talked the talk, he didn't walk the walk by moving away. Uh, the two sons, Malon and Kilian, their names mean something close to like sick and dying. And then like what happens to them? Names are significant. A name, Boaz, just sounds tough. Can we just say that together? Boaz, one, two, three. Boaz, right? Like it's a tough sounding name. True story. My neighbors had a 120-pound Rottweiler and they named it Boaz. Never before did a name fit an animal so well as this thing walks around. Boaz, right? That's, it's, a name. it's a tough sounding name. It's a tough name. The name actually means man of strength or strong man. That's Boaz, guy in the story. I, I just want us to see Boaz. He's a strong guy. I said he's a man of standing, which sometimes is written as a way to like suggest that he has a level of influence in the community. Yes, because the word that's used here, it means he's rich. He's wealthy, and so he has influence as well. He owns the farm that everybody in the story is going to be working on. That's Boaz. That's, that's this guy. But he shows up to work on Monday, and he meets all of his employees with this greeting like, the Lord be with you. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm going like, that's a weird way to say hello to your staff. It was then too. That's not typically how people greeted each other. That was a priestly greeting. That was what the Levites, that was what the temple workers, that was how they greeted everybody on Sunday. Well, for them it was Saturday, but you get the idea. That's what they did in worship context. The Lord be with you and also with you. Or in this case, the Lord be with you. So what Boaz does, it's interesting, right? Because he takes this priestly greeting from the temple, from worship, from church, and he brings it with him to the office or the job site on Monday. I love that. Uh, John Piper said one time that you can measure a person's uh, godly presence by seeing 
and commitment by seeing how deeply God has saturated his everyday life. And this time we see Boaz and we see that God has saturated his whole life. Not just the weekends, not just church, but all the way through. Contrast that with Elimelech, who walked the walk but did not, nope, talked the talk but did not walk the walk. Um, I'm not a football player at all, so maybe you are, maybe this will resonate with you, but I read. So I read somebody who was like coaching football and saying this thing, he goes, this is what I try to do with, uh, with the boys playing football. I tell them, um, I tell them when you're trying to tackle somebody, um, don't look at their feet because the feet will go like all over. Don't look at their hands. Don't look at their head because their head is going to bob all over to trick you. He goes, tackle and stare at their belly button. He goes right there in the center because it's very difficult to trick somebody with the belly button. I just thought that was like a cool way of saying like, if you want to know how deeply God saturated the everyday life of somebody, you got to stare at their very center, their, their very core, because it's very easy to trick somebody with their words or with their feet or their hands or their head. It's, it's, not, so difficult. it's not so easy to trick people with the saturation of a God-filled everyday life. And this is Boaz. He brings the priestly greeting from Sunday into work on Monday. So I'm going to talk to some of you. It's not just fellas now, but it's kind of everybody. Because some of you are going to work tomorrow, and, and some of you have people who look up to you. Maybe this means you're a shift supervisor. Maybe this means you're a floor manager. Maybe this means that you're the owner of a company. Maybe it just means that you've worked there longer than anybody else. Maybe this means that you're a stay-at-home parent and the people are physically looking up at you because they're your kids and they're shorter than you. If you're going to work tomorrow, we're head or we're home or outside of the home, and people are looking up to you, if you have some influence, consider Boaz. Because what Boaz knows, this is so important, what Boaz knows is he's the closest thing to a priest that some of those guys that work on the farm are ever going to see. Because he knows he doesn't see them in worship. He knows they're not committed to the godly way of life like he is. He knows that every idea, every concept about God that they have is probably going to come from him because he's the closest thing to a priest they're ever going to see. Some of you are going to work tomorrow with you, are supervisor at the business or you own the business, whatever it is that you have downlines on, whatever level of influence you have. Listen to me, you have to know that for some of those people that you work with, or work over, you're the closest thing to a pastor that they're ever going to see. Their idea about who God is and how God loves comes directly from you. Steward that gift well. I don't know where we got this idea that there's like this split between like spirituality and like all of the rest of life. I don't know where we got this split to say like, no, it's okay to work hard, but if you make money, if you end up owning a successful business, that's, not, that's no good. I don't know where that comes from, but I just want to say that there comes an opportunity along with a responsibility to be the pastor that many of them are only ever going to have. Okay, totally beside the point, but that's Boaz. He's strong and he's godly. If we're going to sum it up in just two words. He's not the only character in the story. Remember, he asked the question, what about that young woman over there? Verse 6. His overseer replied, she's the Moabite. Okay, we get it. All right. She's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. 
And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and remained here from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. This is, uh, this is Ruth. Ruth is a tremendous woman. Let's just get that out there. I mean, we call the series Unbreakable, largely because of the faith that Ruth has. The life that Ruth lives seems to be unbreakable. I mean, everything that she has been through. You know, she's, uh, she's asking permission in this segment to glean, uh, which means that uh, she's picking up on an on a, uh, ancient Israelite custom where by the field owner, especially if he was uh, wealthy like Boaz was, he would literally cut corners, but in a good way, uh, on his field. And he did kind of harvest in a, a square-shaped field in a circle. So he'd leave the corners untouched so that some people on the marginalized, some people uh, who didn't have the advantages that others did, could, the more vulnerable, could come and have the dignity of harvesting the corners themselves. But uh, God gave restrictions on who was allowed to glean, because not just anybody. Uh, so God said, uh, these are the four classes of people that are allowed to glean. You had to be in one of these four categories. You had to be either a widow, an orphan, fatherless, he called it. You had to be an alien or undocumented. You had to be poor. Look at that lens. Look at that, the, those four characteristics through the lens of Ruth for just a minute. Ruth, by the way, who is married and never had a kid for 10 years before her husband up and died. And then her father-in-law, the only father figure she had in her life, Elimelech, also died. She was a Moabite, don't forget, because we're told like a hundred times. She's not from around here. And you know that girl was poor. She's four for four on the eligibility for gleaning. She's like at the bottom of the stack. I just want us to see she had so little working for her. Except for the character of Ruth. If you're looking for two words for Boaz, it's a strong and godly. If you're looking for three words for Ruth, it would be she's loyal, humble, and industrious. She works hard. She's loyal. She st sticks with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Orpah turned around. She fled. She, Naomi said, hey, don't follow me. There's nothing. And she said, okay. But Ruth sticks with her. Where you go, I go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She's loyal. She sticks with her mother-in-law against all odds. She's humble. You know, she could show up to the, uh, she could show up to the field and say, like, I have every right. I am four for four on eligibility for gleaning. I check all the boxes. I'm just going to do it. I demand my right to glean. But she doesn't. She goes to the shift supervisor, the overseer, and she's like, hey, this is my situation. Am I, am I okay? Can I, can I come and glean here? And he says, it strikes him it, it, to the point of he remembers it. He remembers her because she asked. Because that's her heart. She's humble. And she's industrious. He goes to Boaz. He's like, you know, the, the thing is, like, she showed up and she starts working from morning. She took a little break. My guys took a two-hour lunch, but she went right back to it. And now she's still working. We find out later she goes home that day with an ephah, of, uh, of harvest goods, which is two weeks. She did the two-week allotment in a day. This is Ruth, right? You kind of get the sense in reading through this, 
she's so industrious that the overseer is like talking to the owner, Boaz, and going like, listen, like, I don't know who these other guys are that you hired, but like, I wish they worked half as hard as Ruth does, right? The Moabite <laughs> out in the yard. That's Ruth. She's loyal. She's humble. She's industrious. She has amazing qualities. But that is not what makes her unbreakable. You see, there's something about how Ruth kind of like gets. She understands this this new God that that she submitted herself to. That this new God, and she's like, no, no, he's different than the old God. He's different than the God that that required human sacrifice in Moab. Like, Like, he's unique, he's kind, he's compassionate. There's something about this God. It's like she believes that this God will not fail her. She believes this God will not forsake her. For some reason, she believes that this God will favor her. And so she works with all of her might to to find his presence, to uncover his favor. That's, That's Ruth. She believes. And then she like lives into it. Now the story continues. And if And if you're expecting this like meet-cute sort of story to unfold of Ruth and Boaz, like you'll get there, but there's going to be a twist involved because I don't want to go there today. Okay, let me show you what I'm talking about. Um, Continuing on in the story in verse 8. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, not really his daughter, just an expression. Okay, Uh, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. And don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. Okay, so he's talking to her and he's like, listen, okay, so we're good. Like, you know, you come in here. I got you covered. You have something to drink. Nobody's going nobody's gonna to harm you. In the back of her mind, Ruth is like, it's happening. Right now, and it, And it's totally happening. Like, she gets it. She knows exactly the significance of somebody like Boaz looking at her and casting his favor on her. She gets it. So what does she do in verse 10? At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground, and she asked him a very important question that I hope all of you will ask this week. Why? Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? By the way, I'm not from around here. <laughs> Why have I found so much favor in your eyes that you notice me? Oh, that's a good question. You get, you get the sense, like we're talking about a boy and a girl. We're not talking only about a boy and a girl. You get the sense that the significance of the story, the reason why it has been preserved as a story for thousands of years is not because it's a meet-cute story between a boy and a girl, but the reason why it was preserved this whole time is because as Ruth is lying face down before Boaz, you kind of get the sense we're not just talking about a boy and a girl, we're talking about a God and his people. And that's why it was worth copying and memorizing and repeating to generation after generation. So when we ask this question, Ruth asked Boaz, why are you finding such favor? It's not like she's just asking Boaz. She's asking God, why are you finding such favor in me? What do I have to offer? 
Okay, and here's the thing. Because a lot of us are going to go in this direction of like, Ruth, besides being a Moabite, you have so much going for you. Ruth, you're loyal. Ruth, you're humble. Ruth, you're industrious. Ruth, you're a gem. Ruth, I mean, this is amazing. And, and Boaz, by the way, is strong and godly. You know what? I want my, my son to grow up and be exactly like Boaz. I want my daughter to grow up and be as unbreakable as Ruth. Except for this. She does have those qualities. I'm not denying it. I would like my kid, kids to grow up and be like them, emulate them in that fact. However, if you are putting together a dating profile for Ruth, let's just imagine for just a moment. I mean, this could be Christian Mingle or eHarmony, Coffee Meets Bagel, Bumble, that one that starts with a T that we're not going to get into, right? If you're kind of putting some of this together, there's like half the church is single, so I've heard of them all. Um, if you're putting together a dating profile for Ruth, you, you might lead with something like, well, you know, she's, uh, she's from Moabite, we can't, or Moab. She's a Moabite. We keep covering that one. Um, they do believe in uh, Chemosh, a God that uh, does advocate for human sacrifice. It's sort of an ancestral nature uh, of uh, people, and that kind of continues. So that's a couple strikes against. Um, kind of besides some of that, though, she's a widow. Uh, she's been married 10 years you know, her father figure died. She's four for four on the gleaning thing, right? So that's like not a sweet sign. So like all of this stuff is like, I do not know about getting together with this woman, like pass, right? Except don't forget the cherry on top of this disaster ice cream cone is the fact that, that it's a two for one deal. Is that if you pick Ruth, you also get her literal bitter mother-in-law along with the deal. She's lying down on Boaz, but really it's all of us lying down before God with that in the background and asking the question, why have you found favor? Could you imagine God turning back to you and saying, well, it's because you're industrious. It's because you're humble. It's because you're loyal. Church, I submit to you, she has nothing to offer except a terrible, like an epically bad dating profile. That's it. She's got some qualities to her, but that, none of that means anything compared to the disaster of a life that has been told through her life so, in the many chapters so far. But the story's not done yet because it continues. And Boaz actually gives us the answer. Why then does she have any favor at all? Uh, let's, let's read for it. Continuing on verse 11, and Boaz replies, He's looking at her now, face down. He goes, I have been told about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. That's not it, though. I've been told about how you have left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. Those are hands. Those are feet. That's head moving. That's not belly button moving. That's not it. This is it. May the Lord repay you, almost, we're getting there, for what you have done. Don't you wish I'd just stop talking yet to it? May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. Here it is. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Whose wings? 
She's lying face down before him. Why have I found favor? Is it because you've come to, to under my wings? No. Is it because you've hung out under Naomi's wings? No, no, you did that. But all of that is like a product of the thing in her life. The, the significant part of it is that she took refuge under God's wings. Under his outstretched arms, she found a home. She found protection. Who are you trying to impress? She's not answering with Moab. She's not answering with Naomi or even Boaz. She's finding refuge under God's outstretched wings. This word, this language, doesn't mean like a ton of us, a, a ton to us today. It did back then. Because back then, this language of like outstretched wings and under the wings of an eagle was hugely significant and repeated countless times throughout the Old and New Testament. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the deep. And the Spirit of God, let's see if you know it, the Spirit of God was a little louder, okay? The Spirit of God was hovering. Awesome. The answer Bible isn't underneath the chairs. Um, the Spirit of God is like, is like hovering over above. The, the word there is like brooding like, like an eagle over its nest. It's catching an up, updraft of wind. And because the wings are outstretched, it's like I'm always there. You go out, you come back empty. I'm still there. I'm right above you. I'm watching you and I'm protecting you. God says to his people after they get out of Egypt, his newly saved people in Exodus 19.4, he goes, don't forget how I saved you, the plagues. Don't forget how I saved you and also that I brought you out under my wings. When he has them carve the Ark of the Covenant, which is the significance of his presence in the most holy place of the temple, he says, this is what I want you to do. Make it out of wood and carve it with four angels on the corners. And all of them are going to have their wings over, outstretched, covering it. Because I want you to know that this is who I am. I'm the God who's got you covered. I'm the God who protects you. I'm the God who takes care of you no matter what. And that's what Ruth does. She says, I am not going to look for my protection under anybody else or anything else except for God. If it's said that whatever we serve, whosever approval we are seeking, we become their prisoners. May we seek the approval of the one who will give his life for us. May we be prisoners of Jesus Christ and him and him alone. Who are you trying to impress? If you live for the applause of the world, you will die by its criticism. I ask you this week to take a little bigger slice of your heart. Hand it over to the God who says to Ruth, and he says to you today, I will not fail you. I will not forsake you. I will favor you. Come. Come under my wings of protection and find my favor. Could you imagine the difference that this would make. Imagine the dis difference that this, that this would make when you go to work tomorrow. If you're not looking for the validation of your boss or your employees, but you have your validation already from the God of the universe who loved you to death and back. Imagine what it could do for your marriage 
Instead of, trying, instead of trying to get something from her or him, you can freely offer yourself and sacrifice yourself because you have a full tank of a God who offered himself and sacrificed himself. Imagine what it could do to, to friendships as you become more and more vulnerable because you're not worried about judgment or criticism because the high king and the grand judge has already deemed you as worthy as his one and only son, Jesus Christ. In fact, when he looks at you, he sees someone who is strong and who is and who is uh, godly like Boaz. He sees someone who is loyal, who is humble, who is industrious like Ruth. He sees somebody who is all of those things and even more, all of the righteousness of his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who died and came back to life. That's what it means to be covered under his wings like Ruth is covered. Imagine what it could do to a small group if everybody knows, everybody there, knows that they are loved to death. There's one person that I want to tell you about who didn't have to imagine because she lived it. Some of you have found her stories in a few different, few different places, kind of spliced through it. She's been in and out of the, the public eye. Um, her name is uh, Sean Johnson, and she was a 2008 Olympic uh, medalist in the Beijing Games. Uh, gymnastics is her sport. The year before, in 2007, she actually won three world championship gold medals. So coming into the 2008 Games, she was like a shoe-in, expected to clean up with all these gold medals. The very first exercise was her sport. That's what she was good at. That's what she was known for. But it was somebody else. It was actually a teammate, Nastia Lukin, who executed the routine of a lifetime. And she knew as the score popped up that with her planned exercise, it was statistically impossible, no matter how well she executed, to win a gold medal. It was gone. And all of the pressure, uh, all of the weight that she experienced from her family, from her coaches, from the sponsors, even the whole country, weighed on her. And she said it all came to a point when she was standing on the podium and the person who was hanging a silver medal around her neck looked at her and said, I'm sorry. She knew. She let everyone down. Now fast forward four years and she's ready for her comeback at the 2012 London Games. And she knows she's not 16 anymore, and so she's got to work harder than she's ever worked before. In fact, she's working herself to the bone. She can't stop training, exercising, starving herself. She's not losing weight, and it's frustrating her. Her hair starts to fall out. The stress is cracking her. It's too much. But, but the weight of everybody, the weight of a comeback, the weight of the sponsors who threw their money behind her, the, the weight of the family that made countless sacrifices for her, the, the weight of her coaching staff, the weight of a nation is on the line and she's standing there in June, already expected to go to the London Games in July of that year. And she's standing on the beam. And just before she exercise, uh, executes her exercise, she hears a voice deep down in her soul, whisper, it'll be okay if you go back. It'll be okay 
if you get down, if you go away, it'll be okay. And she says all at once, I knew I did not need the validation of a coach or a sponsor or even a country. She retired then and there from the sport of gymnastics four weeks before she was already accepted to go to the London Games. Looking back, she said, I could have went, I could have won 12 more Olympic gold medals standing on that podium a dozen or more times and it wouldn't have mattered because I stood there and I received a medal. You know what I found? It wasn't enough. It was never enough. Even when she won the gold, it was never enough. And she says, my God in heaven will always be my greatest reward. My God will always be my highest, my proudest accomplishment. Who are you trying to impress? If you're going to be in a prisoner to anybody, please, may it be a prisoner. May you give your life to the only thing, the only one who will take it and then give it back to you. I want you to stand up and let's pray together. Gracious God in heaven, many of us are chasing the approval of people that in the end won't matter. God, many of us have gone to the extreme and done extraordinary things to seek after and to be blessed. God, by just people, people who will ignore us, people who will criticize us, people who will judge us, people who will let us down. God, may we shave off more and more of our heart today until we get to the place where we end up handing over our whole heart over to you. God, and we say, this belongs to you. And you'll never judge it, and you'll never criticize it, and you'll never find it wanting, because when we see us, our hearts, hidden under your wings, your protection, you'll see all the righteousness and the goodness of your one and only Son, Jesus Christ. God, may we worship you, the God who recklessly chases after us. In your name we pray. Amen. spoke a word you were singing over me you have been so so good to me for I took a breath you breathed your life in me yes you did you have been so so kind to me Come on, believe this.
couldn't earn it I don't deserve it Still you give yourself away Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God
Church, as you head out, may you pray these words along with Ruth, continuing on the story in verse 13. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. Go in peace, and we will see you next week for part three of Unbreakable. Thank you.